This episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Rebel Riot Printing. Celebrating their 10th year in business, Rebel Riot is locally owned and family operated, offering custom printed tees with no minimums and fast turnaround. And by Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code. Real JavaScript, real devices, and really fun. Hands down the most fun way for curious kids ages 6 to 14 to learn coding. Use promo code DETOX for $20 off any subscription order of $50 or more. That's D-T-A-L-K-S DETOX for $20 off any order of $50 or more with Bitsbox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a podcast for dads where this dad talks about life, kids, and stuff. I am your host, Joe Shaw. Now on today's episode, I've got a very special guest, Mr. Brian McLaren. Brian was somebody I was very excited to talk to. He was somebody who really helped shape my opinion of religion and spirituality, both in college and then uh, several years after college as well. He's somebody that I have gone turned to time and again when I've tried to understand a little bit more theologically speaking or spiritually speaking about viewing the world. He's somebody that always has a very open mind and is very passionate about bringing people in this world, on this planet, together for a common good. So, We touched on a lot of great topics, and I know that you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So stick around, and Brian will be here right after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is Mr. Brian McLaren, activist, speaker, author, pastor, theologian extraordinaire, and most importantly, a dad. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Happy to be with you. <laughs> I, uh, For those who do not know, I was very excited to get uh, Brian on the show. He wrote a, a ton of fantastic books, but the there's a trilogy of fiction books called A New Kind of Christian that was very crucial to me in my formative years in college and then right outside of college. And I remember, I remember, shout out to my friend John Thornton, he was working at this very small bookstore called Sunrise, S-O-N, Rise, and was chatting chatting me up about senior year about this really great, cool trilogy of books. You got to read it. You got to read it. It's very formative. And he was one of those guys that was like a hipster before hipsters were a thing. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to listen to this guy. I'm going to see what uh, what he's talking about. And so I went and I got the book and I, I, t- I couldn't put it down. Got the next one. And then the last one, the last word in the word after that, if you will. And uh, it was just very, it meant a lot to me. For one, it, it gave me a new perspective on something I'd been told day after day, year after year, forever. And it encouraged me to stretch the bounds of my spirituality, my faith, and really dig into what I thought I knew and really kind of question and and go on this journey of self-discovery that I, I didn't realize I needed until that moment. So all of that to say, that's a little bit more of a professional way to gush, but I want to say thank you for doing all that good work. And uh, I'm excited to, to kind of dig into a lot of different stuff here today. Well, thanks, Joe. I should say um, I'm especially glad to hear those three books were useful for you. Um, I just uh, uh, actually any day now, the, those three books have gone out of print and they're being re-released. Uh, I wrote a new afterword for for the book. So 
they'll oh, be wow. out any day now. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, I know I've got those first editions uh, here in my house, so I'm very. I will hold on to those. So this is awesome. So Brian, one thing I want to start out with, and there's a, a couple different ways I want to go, but I want to start in a little bit more of a traditional way in which I do with parents that come on the podcast. And I want to ask you, what do you think makes a good dad? Mm. Well, uh, this won't sound terribly profound, but liking your kids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, obviously, we all love our kids. We're committed to them. But, right. But learning the kind of magic that makes each child different, I think, is so important. And learning to appreciate that, uh, really liking your kid and and discovering and accepting them for who they are, I, I think that's that's very important. That's fantastic. You are, you know, it's it's one of those things that sounds so easy and simple, like, oh, just like your kids. But it, you find day after day, what I find a lot of times is as much as I love my kids, there are times where they, they I, you know, they really are meant to to push us, stretch us, and really challenge us <laughs> in a lot of different ways. And, right. and it makes it very difficult in some situations to, to be very present and to be whole, you know, wholly there for them. But then I always kind of take a step back and go, no, these are as much as I might be frustrated about this or the other, or I might be challenged by different things. It is a, a one in a life, a once in a lifetime experience. And they're never going to be this age, the day that they are today, a second time. And that's, that's well said. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And it's so true. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, and it's it's easy to 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 think about. Oh, if I can just get him in bed, then I can focus on this, or if we just do this and that. <laughs> but then you know, you look up, and it's like no one cares that you replied to that email. You know, nobody cares that it took you a day or two days to reply, but they know. You know, you have their full attention right now in this moment, and it's so easy yes. to to take that for granted. So true. So true. Uh, you know, and, and I don't want to underestimate how tough it is when you have small children, especially, right. Uh, we had, four, we had four kids in six years. That's oh, wow. huge demands. Yeah. And now I'm a grandfather and I watch my, uh, two of my kids who have children and, you know, my wife and I just look and we think, how did we survive on so little sleep? How right. did we survive on so little privacy? Right. So it, in many ways, having especially young kids is, is probably the hardest, most demanding time in life. And, um, uh, and it, so you, you can't minimize that. It's re there are days that are just really tough, you know, projectile vomiting and diarrhea right. at the same time. <laughs> There's no way to make that nice. Right. But, um, but uh, uh, you know, what, one of the things that, uh, well, I, I wrote a novel, some, a novel some years ago that has never yet been published, maybe someday, but in the novel there's a woman character, a mother, who uh, – who realizes once her son is in college that um, she gave herself a child, but never gave her child uh, freedom to have his own life. Mm. And, and I think this is one of the things that happens to us, especially, you know, when, uh, when the child we actually get doesn't match with the ideal or the dream or the fantasy that we imagine. Right. And that's, that's where learning to, to, uh, give our child permission to have a life, not just give ourselves a child, but give our child a life. Right. That is a hundred percent true. You even see that, <clears throat> that same idea in a lot of relationships or marriages that don't end up working yes. out. And it's because people have this idea of, of how they want things to go. And then in reality, they don't understand that relationships are very difficult 
beasts of burden, if you will. And you don't, you don't under, I mean, it's called a labor of love for a reason, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. it's hard work. And a lot of times we don't attribute it, especially in today's age where, where most people are only posting the, the highlights of their life. And so it's, <laughs> it's very easy to say, well, I'm literally the only person in the world struggling with this right now. And it's like, no, oh my gosh, you're probably about 90% with everybody else, but nobody is talking about it. And I think you see some people trying to step up and shed light on, yeah, it's a struggle and you work through it and you find out what works and, and you, you know, leave what doesn't work on the floor and you move forward. But it's so easy to just kind of cut bait and run that, that because, as you said, it doesn't match up with the ideal of what you had in your mind when it comes to a relationship or, or one thing or the other. And you, we, we as humans want to meddle so much and we want to just like, maybe if we just tweak this and, and, and tweak that and just get it just right, we'll get it perfect. And, and I was thinking about you know, there was a, I, I watched the show uh, Speechless, and there was a scene in, in a recent episode where these two characters are, are trying to eat a piece of the cheese ball in order, and they accidentally ate it, and they're like, oh no, I got to remold it so it looks the same. And they're like, well, it doesn't look the same. Let me take a little bit here off, and let me mold it, and let me take a little bit here off. And, and they get it, and at the end of it, they're left with a crumb because they've shaped it so much, there's nothing there. And it's funny, but I, I was thinking about that as a metaphor for our lives a lot of times, you know, we, with our relationships or with our children or with our jobs or whatever it may be, we want so hard that we're like, Oh, we're so, we're so close. If we just did this and we'll get there. And in reality, it's like, no, I think sometimes you can adjust and it's growth. And other times you have to say, this is the struggle that I'm in and I need to work through the challenge and come out a little bit more hardened or a little bit wiser and a little bit better off. Uh, so, so true. Uh, so true. And, uh, uh, you know, you you mentioned this this feeling. Oh, everybody else, this must be easy. You know, we we sort of judge people on their Instagram moments, right? Um, uh, and and we 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 forget that yeah, behind the scenes, we all have those days where we yell and we lose our temper. We all have those days, uh, and yeah, we 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 need to give ourselves some grace, each other some grace, and and uh, I I think if we remove that pressure to be so perfect. It'll probably in the in the long run help us behave better, right? <laughs> because the pressure the pressure probably makes us worse, right? Absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> I was listening to something uh, the other day. One of my friends said, and they said, "No, it's okay because if you if you put enough pressure on coal, it becomes a diamond." And I'm like, "Man, I don't want to go through that phase. I don't want <laughs> I don't want so much I don't want to put so much pressure on my life that I'm hoping it turns out a diamond." I said, "If you don't put the right, if you put too much pressure, it's just dust." at the end of the day, you know, so it's like, you know, so I'm like, I don't want to be dust. I'd rather just be cold. That's able to be sustainable for a certain period of time and then go from there. But, but, uh, but yeah, neither here nor there, but, but talking about going through a rough time, you know, one, one, something I want you to kind of walk us through for those that may not be aware, cause I've got a wide variety of listeners. Some are religious, some are not, some are uh, spiritual, some are not. And a lot of, you know, I've got people that are all over the political spectrum that listen and, and come to the show for for a good conversation and a good dialogue. And so what I want to kind of talk through a little bit is for those that are not aware, can you really walk us through the 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 point at which led to you writing the new kind of Christian books, the trilogy, kind of what caused you, because I know they're fiction, but they're, as I recall, they were loosely based on, on experiences you had had, correct? 
That's right. Okay. Yeah. So loosely based on those yeah. experiences. So kind of talk us through the genesis, if you will, of those books and that idea. And then also the feedback that you got as a result of that and kind of how you worked through all that and came out kind of the other side. Sure, sure. Well, I guess the, the place to start is to say that, you know, a, a percentage of us grow up with a religious upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, for some of us who grew up with a religious upbringing, it just works through our whole life. We never have any questions. We never have any problems. It just fits like a glove. Right. I, I find that to be fewer and fewer people, but I, there are people like that. Um, but w what happened to me, and I think what's happening to more and more people, is you grow up with a religious heritage. It helps you in some ways. It gives you some moral guidance. It, it uh, you know, builds your character in some ways. But you get to a certain age and you start seeing problems with it. Right. Um, you know, I, I grew up in what you might call a fundamentalist family uh, and wonderful parents, loving parents, uh, so many good things about my upbringing, but the theological tradition that my parents inherited, and then they kind of loosened up a little bit and what was presented to me and others, I was given a less strict version of fundamentalism than, than my parents were. Um, but I, uh, you know, one of the things that required was, for example, not believing in evolution. Well, I was a young kid in middle school who was super interested in science, and I thought evolution was one of the most interesting things that looked beautiful to me. Sure. And if you, if you had told me, you know, uh, the stories in the Bible about the creation are poetry and they aren't conflicting with evolution. Yes. One is telling the story in a kind of poetic way. Another sense, I would have, it would have been fine, but I was told by especially a certain Sunday school teacher, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or evolution. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm 14 years old. Four more years, I'll be 18, and I am out of here. You know, it just felt confining. Sure. On top of that, uh, a whole lot of it felt boring, and a whole lot of it felt hypocritical. You know, when you're a young teenager, you're looking for hypocrisy and right. so on. And I want to interject. Um, just so, I want to interject just for a second. Yeah. One, one, you talk about poetry, and that's some. That's a conversation I've had with a lot of people because when I went to school, uh, I took he I took biblical languages as a foreign language, and so. I took Hebrew and the most, one of the most eye opening moments for me was when I'm interpreting the, the Torah or interpreting the entire old Testament and different parts of it. And I'm getting to the Genesis story and I'm recognizing how the old Testament is broken up into different styles of writing. Yes. And that was something nobody had told me. Nobody had said, this is poetry. This is law. This is um, meant to be historical. This is meant to be fiction, you know, or, or whatever. You know, I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but yeah. But yeah. when I'm reading the creation story specifically, to your point, and I'm reading it as poetry, as like Robert Frost or Walt Whitman or whatever, and I see, oh, this is very beautiful. The words are meant to evoke a love towards the, our Creator, and it's not in a literal sense. Then I went, this is astounding. And I didn't think it was a literal in general. I did believe in evolution, but, but nobody had said, this is poetry. You are to interpret yes. this as poetry. It is meant to be a loving message to, to the creator. It was not until that moment that I really kind of recognized how beautiful it was. So I, yeah, I didn't want to sidetrack, but I wanted to really flesh that out because that was crucial to my understanding of the Bible at that point in time. Well, it's exactly the, the kind of struggle that I went through. Uh, there's a, um, a Catholic scholar named Dominic Crossan, and he says, look, it, it's not that we're so, that people back in the ancient times were so stupid, they took everything literally, and now we're so smart, uh, we, we don't take it literally. He said, no, 
people in ancient times knew they were dealing with mysteries that they didn't understand. They knew that they were speaking metaphorically. They, right. know, they, they understood how literature works. Uh, we're the ones who are so flat that we right. <laughs> right. literally, literally right. in order to be important. So, right. uh, so that was a big part of my struggle. And uh, on top of that, you know, I came of age in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, I, my sympathies were, uh, I, I didn't think the Vietnam War was a good idea. I was sympathetic with uh, Dr. King, sure. the civil rights movement. And I realized that my religious community, it was, I, I, I'm white, I grew up in primarily white church, and um, and I realized that they pretty much didn't care about civil rights, they didn't care about war, uh, you know, they were pretty much ready to go along with anything the government said, right. uh, and anything that their neighbors went along with. They just had different doctrines about how to go to heaven and how to go to hell. And all of that just didn't seem right with me. So sure. I, I was on my way out when I had a kind of powerful spiritual experience as a teenager that kept me in the Christian faith, but always kept me having some frustration and desire to think for myself is, a, I guess, a good way to say it. Sure. I, I need to be honest about my own questions. And I never expected I was going to become a pastor. I, I wanted to be a college English teacher, actually. But eventually, I, I did go into pastoral ministry. And sure enough, people would make an appointment, come to see me, and they would bring their questions. And I, I would sometimes, you know, after they left with an appointment where they'd ask me all their questions, I think, wow, their questions were better than my answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and, and, you know, this really, uh, uh, this really relates to parenting as well, because any, anybody who's, you know, been a parent knows your kids sometimes ask really profound and tough questions Yeah. and questions about faith, about God and all the rest. And, um, so, uh, uh, learning how to make room for people have questions and to tell them that faith isn't having all the answers. Faith is wrestling with the most important questions. That's eventually what, what I needed to see. I didn't get a lot of help from my religious tradition. So it was a long and, and somewhat painful process of getting there, but that's what inspired me to, uh, to write. Sure. And, uh, talking about profound questions, my, my four-year-old asked me not too long ago, what is the solar system? And, and I was like, I don't even know where to begin. Like we have a solar system <laughs> book and she was like, what are planets? Like, what, what is this? And so I finally got to a point where I explained it. And I think I've said this before on the show. So listeners, if you've heard this before, just bear with me. But I explained, I said, okay, so earth is like our house. We live here. We're always here. This is our place. Boom. We're here. But the other planets are like other houses down the street. And so we're close. We're, you know, at one end of the street. And the further away we get from our end of the street is like kind of further away from the sun, like all these different streets. And I was like, there's all these planets, right? And we're in the Milky Way galaxy. That's like our neighborhood. And I said, but there's infinite number of planets and galaxies out there that we haven't discovered. That's like all of the other streets and all the other houses and all of the rest of the country or world. That's how many there are. And she got it and she understood it and went, okay, that makes sense. But it was not something I had really thought about <laughs> explaining until that moment. Oh my gosh. You know, you, you, you look at a, a three or four year old kid and you think uh, how much they have to learn in such a short time. Right. You know, I, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I, I had this memory of being, I don't know, I must've been four. And I, I remember thinking, okay, I put food in my mouth. And then I know it comes out the other end. Right. And I have no idea how one turns into the other. You right. Know? And I remember being this little kid thinking, 
I wonder if I'll ever understand that, you know? Right. And, uh, uh, you, you know, just, uh, it's amazing how much we learn in such a short time, even, uh, especially when you have young children under the age of four and you realize in your first four years of life, you learn language and you will never ever learn anything as complicated for the rest of your life as right. learning language. Yes. And you don't even know you're learning it in some ways. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's it an is. amazing process to witness and, and because you don't remember it. Right. <laughs> right. It. Exactly. Exactly. So, but you get to in some ways watch it unfold with your kids. Right. Now, what was the type of response that you had gotten after the New Kind of Christian trilogy books were published? I, I got almost no neutral response. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. I, I, I figured. <laughs> I, I had people who contacted me and said, uh, I thought I was the only person having these questions. I had people contact me and say, um, uh, I wouldn't still be a Christian if it weren't for you know this book. This sure. book really helped me. I remember... Uh, when that third book come out, came out, the last word in the word after that, I heard from a father who said um, his daughter had been in a, a mental hospital uh, and what her, her depression and anxiety had latched onto is this idea of hell. And he said he, uh, gave, he, he gave her my book and that it was the first thing that gave her peace of mind oh, wow. uh, and, and helped her to get through that. So there was so many encouraging uh, really encouraging responses that came and still come uh, today. Uh, but of course, then I had some other people who who uh, said, "You're going to hell. You're a heretic." You're, right. You know, and, and they had all that kind of thing to say. How do you respond to somebody when they are so vitriolic with with their feedback towards you? <laughs> well, I guess I should tell you a quick story about this. I okay. Uh, after that, the first in that trilogy came about a new kind of Christian. Uh, a, a pretty well-known magazine, uh, the editor of this magazine called me. It's a religious magazine. He called me and he said, I didn't like your book. I don't agree with it, but I think it's really important. So I'm going to do something I've never done. Uh, I'm going to have three issues where we talk about your book. Oh, wow. So the first issue, I'll have a, how did he say? I'll have a critical review. The second issue, I'll have a friendly review. And the third issue, I'll have a hostile review. And then I'll let you on the third issue reply. Okay. <laughs> um, and so uh, when I read the hostile review, it was so, uh, I felt it was incredibly unfair, incredibly yeah. vicious, uh, and totally missed the point uh, of what I was really uh, after. And I, so I had to write a response. And I wrote this passive aggressive response. You know, I had to fit my whole response into like 750 words. Right. And it's like 1130 at night. And I'm supposed to turn this thing in the next day. And I just thought, I don't like this response. This is so defensive. It's so and, and I just, you know, hit delete on my computer. Oh, wow. Said, I, I, I don't want to write a response like this. So I just started over again. And and what I realized was that that certain people, you know, I suppose this is true in religion. It's true in politics. Uh, I'm sure it's true in you know professional disciplines. If you're a scientist in some field, there are certain people who function like gatekeepers. Right. And and their job it's almost like being a watchdog. Their jo job is if something they don't recognize comes to the front uh, gate, they're supposed to bark. And, sure. You know, scare everybody away. And what I realized is this guy, his job is to be a gatekeeper. And his job is to say, 
is this the same from of what we've always heard, or is this different? Right. And if it's different, I'm going to bark. Well, right. What I realized, you know, it took me a while. I, I'm not saying <laughs> I was there at the beginning. But at the end of that process, I realized he was doing me a favor. The truth is what I was saying really was different. Um, and what I realized was in some ways every unfair criticism, if you don't get defensive and if you don't counterattack, every unfair criticism is an opportunity to clarify your message. Oh. And, and so, you know, I began to learn that that night. And believe me, I've had plenty of negative reviews <laughs> to, uh, to keep sharpening that skill. Right. So. But that's, that's a really, really, uh, not even just optimistic, but a really intelligent way of interpreting the feedback. You know, it's, it's always an opportunity. And really, that can even be applied to most things in life. It's whenever you get some negative feedback or a negative perspective on work you're doing, or how you're approaching a situation or whatever, then you can take the opportunity and go, okay, well, thank you for the feedback. This is what I was attempting to do. This is how I was trying to convey my message. And this is the ultimate point I was trying to get across. And, uh, and it's, it's a valuable skill, not, you know, not just in literature, but in, in all work. And it, it's something that, it, you know, I, I think even I and other people struggle with as well is how to interpret critical feedback on yes. something that's so personal. Yes. But. Yes, yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, we all have an ego and we're all ready to get defensive at the drop of a, a pen. But uh, but I, I think once we let that natural reaction, you know, if we if we don't we don't give ourselves over to that reactivity. There's an old saying, you're only as sick as your reactivity. Right. Right. If we don't give into that. Then uh, we have a chance to stop and say, OK, this person is just trying to do his job. This person is trying to do what he thinks is right. He, he might be being unfair, you know, might, might not even understand what I'm saying, uh, might be very petty. That's his problem. I, I don't want to just, you know, criticize back. Right. Uh, let me use this as my opportunity to say, thanks for your feedback. I think you're right about this. I think you're right about this. Let me explain what I actually am trying to say. You'll probably still disagree with it, and that's okay, but I at least hope you can understand and disagree with the right thing, right? Sure. Suddenly, this becomes, instead of you against me, this becomes me trying to help you understand better. And right. uh, even even with the sense of being able to say, if, if you want to criticize me, I'd like to help you do a better job at it. Here's where you should really focus. Right, right. But it it becomes at that point more of a conversation and less of a shouting to match back and forth. Yes. And you see, and that's all I'm, you know, that's the biggest thing that I'm trying to do here on the show is I'm trying to bring, and, and as I stated earlier, I have a lot of, a wide variety of people that listen to the show all across the spectrum. And what I try and do is I try and have interesting conversations with people so we can hear all sides of, of the argument, so to speak, and the perspective. And, and we can all walk away going, this was a person, they did, they their story had value and I learned something, you know? and Exactly right. And I feel exactly. that I feel that especially right now, we are all so divided because we like to shout back and forth. And it's so hurtful and harmful 
when we do that instead of just have a genuine conversation with people. And I know, I know I might have this perspective and of the fact that I feel it's really started in the last couple of years, but I think realistically it's been a little bit longer than that. It's just been a lot more prevalent in the last couple of years. And so what I really wanted to pose a question to you was, Oh, how do I, how do I, how do I frame this? I should say, uh, talk me through, here we go. Here's a good way to frame it. I want you to talk me through some of the conversations you've had with people and the responses that you've had to deal with in the era of Trump being president. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually have a lot of very first data on that. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, but let me just tell you a quick anecdote. Uh, first, uh, one of my mentors, I, I don't know if you find this to be true, uh, Joe, but a lot of times my ment- my mentors have been about 20 years older than me. And and uh, when I was in my 30s, um, one of my mentors was in his 50s. And mm-hmm. uh, I called him one night and I said, how are you doing? And he said, oh, good. You know, he says, I'm doing okay. He says, you know, my wife and I um, just celebrated our 25th anniversary. And I said, oh, congratulations. He says, yeah, it wasn't such a good anniversary. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we had probably the biggest fight we've had in 25 years, uh, the weekend of our anniversary. And, uh, he said, I realized that for 25 years, I've been, I've been winning arguments and losing my wife. Mm. And I just remember thinking, Oh man, there's one to file away. Yeah. Um, and, and he, he basically said the way that we have kept peace for these first 25 years is I'm the better arguer and I argue my wife into a corner and she gives up and she finally had enough of it. And he said, I'm really worried I could lose her. And, and I thought I could, I could get myself in trouble that way, you know, any, any of us could. And so it, it makes you realize you can win arguments and lose friendships. You can win arguments and lose life. Right. Uh, you can win arguments and kind of lose your own soul and your own goodness. So uh, one of the things I realized is that almost never in history has someone disagreed with someone else and the other person says, oh, you're right. I'll change my mind. (laughs) Right. Uh, It just very seldom do we do that. Some people do. And God bless them if they have the humility to do that. Right. But um, just as an example, I, I live in Southwest Florida and I'm a big kayaker and I love to kayak oh, fish. I love kayaking. And I have, oh. uh, it's one of the best things. It, it is. It's so and good. So <laughs> one of my really good kayak fishing buddies, uh, he, he is a huge and sincere and enthusiastic Trump supporter. And, you know, I, I think Trump is a, a, a present danger to life and <laughs> Uh, uh, right. and, and safety and peace and well-being in the in the world and uh, uh, danger to our children. Right. So I, we both have really strong feelings. And uh, uh, what I've learned in talking with him is I don't think I'm ever going to change his mind. I, I think his reasons for supporting uh, Donald Trump are go really, really deep. And they're not on the level of arguments. They're, they're not something that's going to be resolved in an argument. So what I've decided to do is whenever he, he, he throws out provocative statements and, you know, or, and so on, as friends often do, and I've just decided to be curious. So I'll, I'll say to him, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm really curious. And then I'll ask him a question. And so I, I keep asking questions, keep trying to understand. And then I'll say to him, Hey, if you're ever interested in why I see that differently, 
feel free to ask. Now, uh, we've been friends a long time, and so far he hasn't asked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do know is when he talks to other people, I need some of his other friends. Um, I'll meet somebody and I'll say, oh, you're Dave's uh, wacko liberal friend. You know, <laughs> right, right. He, he really loves you, they'll say. You know, he really respects you. So whatever he's saying behind, you know, my back to other people, uh, it, it's it's our, our friendship is intact. And right. I guess the way I I learned I'd say it is something my dad used to say. We've learned how to disagree agreeably. Yes. And and that becomes really important in our world because uh, we if we well, there, there's a, a little passage in the New Testament that says, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you consume one another. In yes. other words. If, if we keep tearing each other down, we'll experience mutually assured destruction. Right. And right. that's really important in these in these times. We, we're, we're one another's neighbors, whether we agree or not. Right. And our call is to love our neighbors. What would you say if, and, and this, is, this isn't a listener, I've got a couple of listener submitted questions as well that we'll get to in a little bit, but this is for my own just kind of knowledge. If you have somebody that says, because I... I do know people that like Trump for very specific reasons and are not religious people at all. And and right. we've gotten to a point where we, as you said, agree disagreeably, right? They know yeah. they know where I stand in, and I know where they stand in, and we're okay at the end of the day. We're fine. But what would you say to the people who are who are listening right now who are very religious and also very avid Trump supporters because they feel deep in their heart that Trump is somebody that is, I don't want to say ordained by God, but I want to basically say all but that, that they feel that he is, he is put in place by God at this point to be president and we should all follow everything he does. That may be a bit of a stretch, uh, but that is the vibe I get from some people on social media yeah. when they post about him. I have other friends yeah. that are religious that are like, well, he's the president, but I'm just going to ignore this stuff and, and vote party line, so to speak. And then there's other people that are like, uh, like constantly saying what a great work he's doing. So I just kind of, uh, you know, for people that are religious, that are Trump supporters and are very avid Trump supporters, yeah. what would you say to them? Well, um, I, I think, um, I, I would try to, I, I would, I would focus on two things. The first thing I'd say to them is I'd say, look, uh, were you as supportive of President Obama as you are of President Trump? In other words, if right. people only become president because of God's will, then and you want uh, people like me who disagree with Trump to just be okay with it because it's God's will for him to be president, were you that okay with Obama? Because you should at least be considerate. So I, m I might have a sure. conversation like that, right? That's a good point. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I know a lot of other people, uh, because of their religious commitments, they've come to believe that because Trump uh, agrees with them about uh, about criminalizing abortion, right. um, that uh, that means that anything else he does is excusable. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and I, I would want to have a deeper conversation with people who feel that way. I, for example, I might, if they're evangelical, I might want to tell them a little bit about the history of uh, how evangelicals became uh, anti-abortion. A lot of evangelicals don't know that when I was a child, when I was a boy, up through the early 1970s, evangelicals were by and large pro-choice, not not uh, 
pro-life. And uh, in fact, uh, there's, if anyone's interested, there's a historian named Randall Balmer, B-A-L-M-E-R, who's written a book about this. But there's a summary of the book and a Politico article they can look up online. If they look up Randall Balmer. Okay. Um, so if you if you were evangelical, I, I'd want to say, look, you ought to at least learn about the history. And uh, uh, that's all I'll say about that for now. Sure. Um, if the person's Roman Catholic, I would say. Uh, I would say, listen, if you're Roman Catholic, I understand you have a longstanding, deep, uh, you know, church teaching against abortion, but you also have very longstanding church teachings about something called Catholic social teaching. Right. And, and so I want to remind them to try to balance, to be a good Catholic means you don't just pick abortion and throw Catholic social teaching out the window, but if you want to be a really good balanced Catholic, then you need to, to uh, hold those things in tension. And probably that's where I'd want to get with anybody is I'd want to say, listen, um, I don't think there's ever, I, I think if I ran for president, I wouldn't agree with everything I did. Right. <laughs> right? Fair, so, fair. Um, I mean, politics is complicated. And right. uh, uh, so I, I, what I'd want to say is we're probably in a lot of danger if we subcontract out our conscience to either Fox News or MSNBC or, or CNN or whatever. Sure. Part of our job as human beings, in fact, especially if we're talking to, to fathers, part of our job as fathers is to develop a clear enough moral code and set of moral values that we, number one, can be an example of it to our children. And number two, we can coherently teach it to our children to help them you know, become people with a, a strong and clear moral code. So, right. um, you know, when, when we're knee jerk this or knee jerk that, and we aren't thoughtful, and we aren't willing to reason, I can just tell you, if you're having fights with your friends or, you know, whatever about Trump now, you might be in a real fight with your son or your daughter in 10 or 15 years when they start thinking for themselves, you'd better learn how to disagree respectfully or you're going to damage your children. Right. And they're going to they're going to remember you as the kind of father who uh, who treated them with disrespect uh, whenever they disagreed with them. Right. That's a very, very valid and profound point with the fact that how you are behaving now, your children are already seeing and emulating that and will become the product of what you're sowing currently. Yes. You know, uh, when I was a, a teenager, I, I grew my hair long and I played guitar and I was a, sort of a hippie. You right. know? As you do. And my dad, right. <laughs> my dad was, uh, and by the way, I used up all my hair. Uh, all at once, so Fair but, enough. You know, my, my dad was very conservative. He was a huge supporter of Richard Nixon um, uh, until a certain point in the Watergate hearings. Sure. But, um, but uh, years later, my mom was talking to me and she said, yeah, your father really was worried. We had a lot of arguments about whether we should require you to cut your hair and get nicer clothes and so on. And she said, but we decided your, that our relationship with you was more important than the length of your hair. Mm. And I, I just thought that was a really great way to say it, especially when you're talking about teenagers, you know, to say, right. how important is this relationship? Because a huge part of the job of parenting when you're having a child when your child is is you know reaching 8 10 12 years old is is it's the process of helping your child become independent right. helping your child have freedom and uh and and that's the same set of skills we're struggling with uh with 
uh, our fellow citizens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the conversations that I know that I've I've seen online or I've seen amongst my friend circle has been people saying specifically. I have a couple of friends that are are evangelicals, and they are not Trump supporters. But they talked about, you know, when the, <clears throat> I'm trying to think most recently with the New York uh, abortion rulings, right? Like there was a lot of uh, outcry and controversy online about the late term abortions for those that are, are curious as to, you know, whenever you're listening to this, this is what I'm referencing, the late, the recent uh, 2019 late term abortion ruling of New York. But uh, there was a lot of outcry about like, you know, how can you be pro this or anti that or, or what have you? And these two specific friends I'm thinking of said, it's not that I'm for abortion. What I'm for is taking care of people. And mm. what their problem was, they said, I'm not even willing to have the conversation with you about pro-life versus pro-choice until you admit that the church is failing as a whole if they are not taking care of those children once they are born and it's like, just give them up for adoption. Well, the adoption process and the foster program is flawed. And so you're, you're saying that you're wanting to subject a, a vast majority of these children to a broken system that will lead them to having broken lives and be broken members of society. And it's that that is a fundamental system flaw that we are trying to fix. And we feel that just by simply saying, no, all babies must be born, you're, you're missing the point. You're not taking care of everybody from birth through death. And they said, that is the problem that we have. And that is where we feel we, and I'm speaking for them, uh, they were saying, this is where we as the evangelical church feel we are not doing our due diligence with the core yeah. foundation of our belief. Yeah. Yeah, these issues are so complex. And there, there's our conscious arguments, and then there are unconscious motivations. And, right. and I'm not just saying this about other people. We all have unconscious motivations. And, and very often, we're the last to be in touch with them. You know, they, they right. show more to other people than, than they do to ourselves. Um, but, uh, uh, years ago I did some writing about this and, uh, I, I was actually involved in, uh, as a, uh, doing some public speaking and, uh, for Barack Obama in his first presidential campaign. And at that point I did a lot of research into, uh, to statistics on abortion. And I, I I'm sorry, I don't have the most current, Research, sure. but no, it's okay. here's here's the thing that I I know was true in 2008, and I would imagine is still true today. If you're looking for the countries with the lowest abortion rates, they are not the countries with the strictest prohibitions of abortion, legal prohibitions of abortion. Mm. They're not the countries with the strictest punishments for abortion. It turns out that the countries with the lowest abortion rates are are often countries that have high amount of legality for abortion. It's just that they address the conditions that lead people, mm. that make people find abortions desirable. Right. So that we know if you provide, if people have better health care, if people have better uh, educate, uh, uh, reproductive education, right. um, if, if people have, if, if men have more access to work uh, as well as women, um, you know, we, we know that those are the conditions that lead to lower abortion rates. Um, now, some people aren't will, even willing to have a conversation about that. All they want is it for it to be illegal. And in some ways, you get the feeling they don't really care what happens as long as it's illegal. And I've, I don't right. want to get into all that. We could have an hours-long discussion <laughs> on, right. on people's motivation for that. But if we wanted to, we could have a very constructive conversation on how to – 
reduce abortions. Just like we could have, a, you know, when people make it all or nothing, I think they actually make it less likely to make progress. If people say, we've got to outlaw all guns, or they say, uh, anything goes, people can have whatever gun they want. Right. If we're all or nothing, I don't think we're going to make progress. Sure. Same thing on, on climate. I'm a huge, uh, I think that Climate change is real. I think we have a moral, God-given responsibility to take care of the earth. And I think poor people will suffer the most from the impacts of climate change. So I think we have this huge moral responsibility to deal with it. But um, I don't think the best way to deal with it is to tell everybody that you can't drive your car anymore. I think sure. we have to, we have, you know, th that kind of absolutism doesn't help us get to a better solution. And unfortunately, political races are one by creating wedge issues yeah. that you can make people afraid of your opponent and vote for you. Right. And that's the way our political system's working right now. And I'm, I'm worried about our future unless we learn how to become smarter than that and not let ourselves sink to that level. And, and it's just going to take people like you and me holding up that as a possibility. We could have a different level of discourse if we wanted to, and it's going to take a whole bunch of us trying to model that. By the right. way, it's the same stuff we want from our kids. We right. don't want our kids whacking each other over that saying, he did it first, he hit me first, or it's mine, no, it's mine, no, it's mine. Right. You know, we see that as pretty childish behavior, but yep. there it goes in, among adults. Absolutely. <laughs> now, speaking of the kind of absolutism that we were talking about kind of being afraid of, one of the last talking points, and I know we're getting close to time, and so I don't want to overkeep you, and we've got a couple of listener questions as well, but briefly, can you... Can you walk me through or walk us through me and the listeners through the current United Methodist Church ruling and what it means for the church in the U.S.? And for those that may not be aware yet, the United Methodist Church ruled and I, I've got it pulled up here. Let me let me just quickly get there. They ruled they they voted to keep bans on same sex weddings and LGBTQ members in the clergy. If if I am correct, they ban they voted to ban gay clergy, LGBTQ clergy and same sex marriages. Uh, across the United Methodist Church denomination. Am I, did I uh, recall yeah. that correctly? I mean, a, a way to say it is their documents, their, it's called their Book of Discipline, but their kind of constitution as a denomination said these things were inconsistent with Christian teaching. Okay. Um, and, and what's happened over the last 35 or 40 years is a lot of people have come to question that. And so they've been developing uh, uh, different ways to deal with it. And now um, the international governing board of the, uh, of the or governing process of the church uh, has said we are not going to change. We're going to go back to our wording from 40 or 50 years ago, mm. and we're going to even intensify the consequences for going against it. So, um, it you know what it felt like is this loosening and opening up over the last uh, uh, several decades, but that has just snapped back to where it was. Um, decades ago. Right. Now, uh, if if I could make a, a couple, would you like me to just make a couple of comments about that? Oh, sure. I mean, I, this is, yes, I'm, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but at this, at the end of the day, I, I could talk about this for hours. This is dangerous, but, uh, <laughs> but no, please go, go right ahead. Well, let me, let me say maybe two things about this first. Um, uh, it's important for people to realize the United Methodist is the third uh, denomination, is the third largest denomination in America. Roman Catholics first, Southern Baptist second, United Methodist is third. So this is a lot of people. 
if you add up all other mainline Protestants, that's Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, you add uh, uh, all of them together, they equal the size of the United Methodists. So this is a lot of people who are affected by this. And right. um, uh, so that's the, the first thing I would say. And and the traditionalists, that's the, what they're often called, uh, who have won this, they won uh, in this uh, decision as of 24 hours ago, um, they uh, feel uh, uh, that they are being true to the Bible because the way they interpret certain verses in the Bible, uh, they think it prohibits uh, LGBTQ uh, identity, uh, and uh, we shouldn't normalize that. We should call it sinful and, uh, and wrong. Um, uh, the thing I, I would just have to say, I'm somebody who grew up with that view. I was taught, I grew up that we interpret the Bible literally and that whatever right. the Bible says, uh, that we used to say the Bible says it, that settles it. Uh, I believe it. Um, yeah. but, uh, here, here's the problem, uh, that I ended up having with that. Uh, I came to realize, first of all, people use verses from the Bible to say women should not be leaders in any way. Right. Um, and then you realize, oh, people use the Bible to say uh, that you shouldn't have interracial marriage. Uh, uh, people use the Bible to say you should have segregation. Oh, people use the Bible to say slavery is okay. Um, oh, people use the Bible to legitimize anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, and when you start realizing how the Bible has been used, you realize that this is not a great history, you know, right. <laughs> using the Bible this way. And this is one of the big things that I think, and it's one of the things that uh, the, the books we talked about earlier that I wrote are trying to address. We're try I think we have to grow up in the way we use the Bible and stop using the Bible as a weapon to hurt people. Right. Um, the other thing I'd have to say about this is, and this relates very much to this podcast, because I'm a, a parent of four adult children, and um, two of my children are heterosexual with children of their own, and two of my children are gay. And so... Um, the thing I can just say to people is if you have never had close relationships with people who are gay, I would just urge you before you make too many pronouncements to actually get to know some people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something it, it, psychologists call it contact bias. Right. And th the idea is like this. If white people are never around black people and all they hear are stereotypes and prejudices about black people, they will believe the prejudices and stereotypes they're told because their lack of contact never gives them data. And right. in fact, they'll have a certain amount of contact that they interpret everything that black people do through the prejudices they inherited. Right. It takes, uh, it takes not just a little bit of contact, but deep and sustained contact before you can overcome the prejudices and, and, and psychologists call this confirmation bias. And, and this is true about race. I think it's true about gender. You've, we've probably all met men who say women are like this, or women who say men are like this. Right. And you, you actually pay attention and there are plenty of exceptions to everything. Right. And I think we're, I think there's something similar that has to go on. Uh, and this is, uh, one last thing I'll say about the Methodist situation. Um, the Methodist denomination, it's, it is, it's an international governance. And so, uh, I think a majority of the American church would support a full inclusion and equality of LGBTQ people, but the African church is not there. Mm. And here's the thing. I've spent a lot of time in Africa. 
And I remember I, I talked to a Kenyan pastor who I love and respect. And I asked him something about, we were talking about the AIDS uh, crisis. And he, I said, uh, what are you doing for the gay community in Kenya? He says, oh, we have no gay community. Uh. Well, the, the truth is about 6% of people in every uh, six to nine percent, there's some uh, variation, but uh, at least six percent of people in every place where this has been studied turn out to be gay. Right. But if they're in a place where they're afraid they'll be killed if they come out, then they never come out. Right. Well, if they never come out, then you never overcome your contact bias. Right. Right. You never get to actually interact with people. And so this is where all of us have a lot to learn. And it, it almost brings us back around full circle to where we started, because the same thing happens with your children. <laughs> when your children are born, of course you love them, uh, but then they start to get their own personality. Right. And you then have to actually get to know their personality, and you you can influence it, but you can't make a child be something he or she isn't. Right. Uh, and, and if you try, you'll really damage them. So this is part of the task not only of parenting, but I think of becoming mature human beings is – is learning to not try to control everything, but to enter without judgment and love to try to actually understand the people we're dealing with. I right. hope that wasn't too long a tirade. No, that was oh, that was perfect. I could just yeah, no, you're good. Um, uh, so we've got two listener questions. I want to try and uh, get through these fairly quickly, just to be mindful of time. But they're both from a, a, a listener. His name is Angel Journey. So shout out to him. But uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, when he heard that you were going to be on the show, he had to send in some questions because he was super excited that you were going to be on here. And uh, so his first question, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'll, I'll just ask it anyways, is how do you advise approaching faith-based conversations with people who use Christianity to perpetuate the mistreatment of marginalized people? Yeah. Well, um, uh, one of the things I would say uh, to Angel is, first of all, Angel, thank you for trying to help folks who um, whose religion has taught them. Uh, they they probably didn't intend this. They picked it up by mistake, or there's been a lot of pressure put on them to marginalize people. And sure. It might be gay people. It might be immigrants. It might be whatever. Um, and the thing I would f first say to Angel or anyone in, in his situation is the irony here is that when you stand up for marginalized people, you are being a Christ-like person yourself. Yeah. That's your job. And uh, so rather than try to change the other person, what I would do is I would show solidarity with the people who are being marginalized. So if yeah. somebody is putting down Muslims, for example, then I would say, in fact, this just happened to me. One of my neighbors a while back started insulting Muslims. And finally I said, hey, 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 just stop a minute. I said, where did you get this information about Muslims? Do you actually know any Muslims? And of course he didn't. He says, right. I'm just passing on what I heard on television. Right. And yeah. I, I instantly knew which cable news network to watch. <laughs> and, and, and I said to him, well, look, I just need to tell you, I have a lot of friends who are Muslim and they're not the way you're describing. And if you keep saying that sort of thing, I've just got to tell you, um, I, I'll, I'm your neighbor, I'm your friend, but you're hurting me when you insult my friends like mm. that, you know? And, and, uh, he said, well, I'm just telling you what I've heard. And I said, okay, I understand, but I just got to tell you, I actually am friends with Muslims and what you're saying isn't true. So you understand instead yeah. of attacking, right. instead of convincing him to change, 
I, I throw my lot in with the marginalized people. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I'd say. And then the sure. second thing I'd say is I, I wouldn't tell them they're wrong because they'll get defensive. But I would say something like this. I know you're a Christian. I know you want to be a good person. I, I sure wish that you would, you would think about what Jesus meant when he said to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. I just wish you'd think about that some. Mm. And, and, and I, I wouldn't put it as you're a hypocrite. I'd put it as I wish. Right. Um, and, and just leave it. And you don't have to convince them. They don't have to agree. But the, a statement, yeah. I wish, is a very powerful statement. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not saying you have to, I won't be your friend. You're just saying, I wish you would take Jesus' words more seriously about right. loving your neighbor as yourself. And you're planting that, that thought in their mind that, you know, they, they might just dismiss it with a wave of their hand or whatever, yeah. but, but yeah. it's there. You've said it and you were very uh, grace-like with the way you delivered it and, and, and low-key about it and it, it wasn't confrontational and it's, it's going to stick with them more than hate-filled words. I hope so. Sure. Yep. Yep. All right. The second question he sent in uh, is he said, with the recent sexual scandals within the SBC, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, with those revelations, as well as the Catholic Church, do you think the modern church model needs to change? He said, for example, not holding priests to celibacy or setting churches up with celebrity pastors, those types of things. He said, are we putting too much pressure on people or maybe not pressure, but are we elevating people to a standard they can no longer, like they can't possibly achieve. And then, you know, we're setting ourselves up for failure as a result. (laughs) Well, this is a really big subject. We we ought to get together again tomorrow night. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Bible study again tomorrow. (laughs) Let let, let me say a couple of things about this. Uh, It's another great question from Angel. So uh, it's a complicated question and uh, there are so many layers at work here, but I'd say a couple of things. Um, one thing that the Southern Baptist Convention and the Roman Catholic Church have in common is they're led by an all-male hierarchy. Mm. And the all-male hierarchy is only accountable to other males. Right. And I think that there is an inherent problem with this. People often call it the old boys club. Mm-hmm. But men are tend to excuse other men of things that uh, if women were in the room, if women were part of the decision-making, wouldn't be so quickly excused. Right. Um, and, and so that's the first thing I'd say. The problem is both the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention have painted themselves into a corner because they both basically say that God has mandated only men to be in charge. Right. Uh, I don't know how they get around that, frankly. I just don't know. And, and what I think is going to happen is more and more of their younger generations are going to leave because they believe in the equality of men and women and because they're suspicious about old boys clubs, uh, in, in, even in religious um, settings. Right. Um, but that, it's, in a way, Angel's question points to a deeper, a deeper issue, and that is a lot of people assume that what religion is supposed to do, it, that religion got things right in the past, and all we have to do now is keep saying what some religious leaders said in the past. Mm. And that's what fidelity is. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. And here's the way I would say it. If you had a super bold, creative leader 300 years ago, super creative, super bold, willing to stand up against the status quo and say some radical new things. And 300 years later, you're saying exactly what your leader has said in a way 
you're following your leader's words, but you're not following your leader's example because uh-huh. you have stopped being creative sure. and bold and thoughtful and innovative. And this is one of the challenges in any institution, not just religion. It happens in government. It happens in business. That we have to realize that what's really important isn't just uh, you know to, to do to to uh, keep saying the same things. It's it's actually to look at the example, and that plays into a whole that the discussion we had earlier about how we read the Bible and so on. And I'll just say I'm a committed Christian, and I see this going on in the Christian world. But I, I have very close relationships with rabbis and imams and uh, members of the Sikh religion and. Um, and Hindus and Buddhists, and I'll just tell you, parallel struggles are happening in mm. every religious tradition, wow. and that's part of the dynamism of being alive today. And it's it's what's going on in government between Donald Trump and Brexit, and and you know, I, I mean, all around the world, all of our institutions that were formed in the past are having trouble adapting to a very rapidly changing world, right. and so this is. This, I think, requires courage and creativity and open-heartedness and uh, and a willingness to disagree agreeably like we talked about before. Right. Absolutely. Well, that is a great place to end that discussion, Brian. Thanks so much. We are going to pivot. Uh, I, I know we could we could have these conversations all night long. I mean, I just have got another whole sheet of questions I didn't even touch. So we'll have to address that next time you come on. But uh, we're going to we're gonna pivot now to uh, my favorite part of the episode, which is the dad jokes of the episode, dad jokes of the week, if you will. And it's a, it's a situation where I will send dad jokes out to the guest, try and get the guests to laugh. The audience groans, but it's okay. I can't hear them. I can only hear the guests. So it works out pretty well. But uh, before I do, I always like to put our guest on the spot. And Brian, do you have any dad jokes that you would like to share with us tonight? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, you, you've probably heard this dad joke. Uh, uh, this is really horrible. Um, it's perfect. It's, perfect. Uh, it's, uh, it's knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? Oh, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. And, you know, really, the only uh, difference between a dad joke and a bad joke is one letter. So you're good. (laughs) Um, I got some uh, Christian-themed dad jokes that I thought you would appreciate. Um, Okay. All right. uh, uh, Brian, who was the smallest person in the Bible? I don't know. Nehemiah. Oh, that is, that's worse than mine. That's worse than mine. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Uh, who was the uh, the most business savvy woman in the Bible? Yeah, I don't know. It was uh, it was Pharaoh's daughter because she went down to the bank of the Nile and pulled out a little profit. Oh my goodness! Oh, I, listen, I know I'm supposed to laugh and other people are supposed to groan, but I'm groaning. I hope somebody somewhere's laughing. Oh, okay. Last one. Last one. Last one. Uh, what kind of man was Boaz before he got married? Single. Ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. He was oh, ruthless. My that one made me laugh. There that we go. There we go. We'll end it on a high note. Well, Brian, if people want to follow you or follow what you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, my website is brianmclaren.net. And something that a lot of your folks might be interested in is I just co-authored my first children's book. It's oh, called perfect. It's in the Story. And uh, I think it, uh, it's really for all ages, but uh, we especially wrote it for young readers. That's like age eight, roughly. Um, but I just got a little letter from a six-year-old who read the whole thing and loved it. And uh, so 
Corey and the Seventh Story if people are interested. Perfect. We will put that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this right now, all you need to do is scroll down in your podcast description, click on the link that I've provided, and you can go purchase the book right away. So brianmclaren.net. Perfect. And uh, yeah, so... Brian, thank you so much for being on the show tonight, sharing your insight. I know we went a little bit over time, so I apologize for that, but it was a really engaging and enlightening discussion that I feel I learned a lot. Our listeners learned a lot. And, you know, all we can ever hope to do is just push the needle further, just a little bit more to where we're all trying to work together to build a better world. I couldn't agree more. It's been a real pleasure being with you. Thanks for the good questions. Good conversation. You're welcome. Now we need a hashtag for this episode. Should we do, uh, let me see here. What did I write down? <clears throat> Not Nehemiah. Let's do, um, <laughs> um, let's do, uh, let me see. It might be a little bit long, but how about hashtag uh, new kind of Christian? That's great. All right. Perfect. That's great. All right. So listeners, uh, Stay tuned. We'll have another great episode coming up with another great guest. But until next time, hashtag new kind of Christian and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.